I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are because in the next hour you're going to meet a chef and cookbook author who's got some pretty strong opinions about pots and pans. Stainless steel is a good conductor and it's safe. Screw aluminum. If all you want to do is boil pasta, be my guest. Buy a shitty aluminum pot and have at it. All right, well, this is the show that uh, actually does most of its cooking in the microwave because this is. From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with chef and author John Gorham, comedian Brandy Posey, comic book writer Brian Michael Bendis, and music from 1939 Ensemble, plus our comedy troupe pending litigation and our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Well, hey there, wonderful people. How are you? Welcome to another edition of Live Wire Radio. Recorded, as always, in front of a live crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, and we have a humdinger of a show for you this week. We're going to talk to comic book legend Brian Michael Bendis. He's the guy behind reboots of Spider-Man and The Avengers. But we're going to talk about his dark days. His days when he made a living drawing caricatures at bar mitzvahs. That is the lowest form of art on the planet Earth. I got to tell you, though, 12-year-old Luke Burbank would have been pretty psyched to have that job. Also, during this week's show, we're going to ask you, the dear public radio listeners that you are, to lend your ears to the music of 1939 Ensemble. Music that might be a little on the experimental side for you, depending. But we're also going to talk to one of its creators about the ideal way to listen to this kind of music. Have no expectations and just sit there and really listen to what's going on. Listen to the brutality. Listen to how pretty the melodies are. And last, but definitely not least, John Gorham will swing by. He's got a new cookbook slash memoir out, and he's the chef behind some of Portland's most popular restaurants. But even he is mystified at Portlanders' tolerance for waiting in these epic lines to eat at his own 
restaurants. That's crazy. I'm like, I, no way would I do that. First, though, in reading John Gorham's memoir, I was struck by a line where he said that the first time he really felt like he belonged somewhere was when he got a job working in a kitchen when he was a teenager. And this kind of jumped out to me because I also had a ton of restaurant jobs when I was growing up, but I actually hated those jobs. And anyway, I started things off by telling the crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater all about it. Here, take a listen. All my friends whose parents had money, they would go to the ski bus in the wintertime, and then they would go to the beach in the summertime, and I'd be making cones at Bumpy's Fruit and Yogurt. I felt like my life was like, I was like the guy in a ZZ Top video. Like the before part, like who has a crappy job before those guys show up with the car and the babes. Side note, I don't care how bad my job is, I would never get in that car with ZZ Top. These guys are terrifying. I did not enjoy this kind of work that I did. I would get up at six in the morning and I would ride my bike down to this diner where I would pour coffee and water for people who wouldn't even look up from their meals. And I really, really, really just resented almost every minute of it. And yet, it was so good for me. I think that having a food service job makes you a better adult human being. I really do. And which is why... Which is why I... And you guys can help me with this. I am ready to launch a bold new strategy that is going to finally get this country turned around and back on the right track, you guys. And it is two years of mandatory food service employment for all Americans before the age of 25. Are you guys with me? Because you will learn how to hustle. You will learn how to be nice to people who are being rude to you. You will learn how to carry impossibly heavy amounts of plates and cups and things like that. And I mean, I, I just, you would be less inclined as an adult to yell at a waiter because there was one sliver of red onion on your salad that the kitchen left in there and then go on Yelp and give them like a negative 10 star review over it. You would be less likely to do that if you'd worked at a restaurant at some point in your life. So I think everyone will just start being cooler to each other. I'm really into this. I don't actually know how to do it though. Does anybody know how to get like a new law made? I assume there's a Kickstarter involved at some point. But you guys are with me, right? We can do it. All right, good. All right. Thank you. I'm telling you guys, someday I am going to run for president and this will be my platform. I'm not saying I'm going to get a lot of votes, but um, the American people will know where I stand on the subject of food service jobs. All right, let's take our first listen to our musical guests for the show. 1939 Ensemble is Jose Medellis, who also plays with the band The Breeders, and David Coniglio, who's the head drum instructor at Portland's famed School of Rock. Now, they've gotten together to make a different kind of sound, maybe, than what you're used to hearing on a public radio variety show. But listen to me, do yourself a favor and tune in to this music we're about to play for you. It's the sound of two guys. They got a drum kit and a set of vibraphones, and they really take you on a journey. Their new album is Howl and Bite from our stage at the Alberta Rose Theater. Check out 1939 Ensemble.
1939 Ensemble, right here on Livewire Radio. Buddy, how the hell are you? Hey, Deb. Uh, I, I didn't know. I, I, I thought you weren't going to be here. Who told you that? Because I will find them and I will kill them with my bare hands. Uh, God, I don't remember. I'm uh, kidding. <laughs> uh, well, it was, uh, it was great to see you. Um, I'm going to go get some of those tuna puffs because I like tuna and puffy things. So... Hey, I noticed that you haven't donated to my Kickstarter yet. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry? I mean, it's fine. I know you'll eventually give because we're friends. Yeah, we are. And we support each other no matter what. Okay, you know what? Um, it's just, I can't, Deb. I can't, I can't give to your Kickstarter. And I won't, okay? I'm, I'm drawing the line what? here. Why? It's a watermelon handle. Right. Okay, uh, you want $25,000 so you can design and produce a handle that people can wrap around their watermelons for, for what was it, uh, more ergodynamic? For more ergodynamic watermelon transport. Exactly. It's a no-brainer. Well, it's not a no-brainer. It's a terrible idea. Uh, and I love my friends, I do, but I am tired of funding terrible ideas. Who had a terrible idea? Uh, well, Ken asked for $40,000 to spend a year knitting a giant sweater for the state capitol building. Sheila started a water polo jersey business, and Crystal actually met her goal of $15,000 to write, direct, and star in a live-action, erotic, choose-your-own-adventure about William Howard Taft. She does look a lot like him. That's not the point. The point is, Deb, that we are paying people to create things that are making the world worse. I wouldn't say that. Really? You know, if Hitler were alive today, I know I'd get an email from him saying... Uh, hey, guys, I have this great idea to invade Poland, and I can really use your support. Even $5 would make a difference. Wow. You did the Hitler thing. You Hitlerized it. Yeah, I did. And the incentives. I don't want a teaser trailer of your Andrew Ridgely biopic or, or update emails as incentives, okay? In fact, you know what, Deb? I'll pay you $200 to never have to hear about your project ever again. Okay, I get it. I don't think you do, Deb, because I have to tell you, part of me wanted to see that giant sweater, but exactly none of me wants to see that stupid, useless, incomprehensibly illogical watermelon handle. Fine. Jeez. Hey, guys, I brought a vodka-infused watermelon, as usual, and it was so easy to carry with this handle. Where did you get that? William Sonoma. It was only 150 bucks, uh, and I have to say, it makes watermelon transport an absolute pleasure because it was the awkwardness of the watermelon that previously stood in the way of my bringing them to more occasions. Problem solved. Damn it! Is that 200 bucks offer still on the table? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Jennifer Rowe, Sean McGrath, and Andrew Harris, right here on Livewire Radio. All right, you are, in fact, listening to Livewire, and if you're actually hearing this, it means that we've actually figured out this whole broadcasting thing. So yay us. Up next, more sounds that we've been making and that are recorded and are coming out to you somehow technologically. We'll be right back with more Livewire.
Welcome back to Livewire. The Livewire podcast is sponsored by Ergo Depot, a company committed to healthy furniture and healthy communities. On the furniture end of things, they've got an entire line of sit, stand, desks, and ergonomically designed chairs to keep your spine from feeling like an unattractively shaped pretzel. And on the community side, they'll match any charitable donation to Livewire or any nonprofit for 30 days after the purchase of said chair or desk. That's what's known as putting your money where your healthy spine is, or whatever they say. Find out more information at ergodepot.com. All right, as all of you here in the Alberta Rose Theater know, and people around the country probably have a sense of, Portland takes its food uh, very, very seriously. Seriously enough that Toro Bravo, the Spanish restaurant created by Chef John Gorham, one of the patrons kept returning to his meal even as EMTs attended to his passed-out wife. (laughs) True story. It's just one of the stories that John recounts in his new memoir-slash-cookbook, Toro Bravo, Stories, Recipes, No Bull. The first cookbook published by McSweeney's, so we can assume all the recipes are hilarious and heartbreaking. Please welcome John Gorham to Livewire. Hey there, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, you have you had a, a chaotic and unexpected childhood for somebody who's risen to the prominence you have in the Portland food world. Your mom had you when she was 14? Four, yeah. Four, she, she got pregnant when she was 14, had me when she was 15. Um, and, and you write that that childhood of yours really kind of propelled you almost into cooking. Like, you almost had no choice. Well, I think it was, uh, you, know, flight or, you know, fight or flight kind of thing where you were like, I, I learned to cook as survival of my own life. What was fend for yourself night? Uh, I had a lot, you know, often it was pork chops, mac and cheese, baked beans, and, but like a lot of breakfast, it was a lot of, actually a lot of breakfast for dinner. It was, you know, pancakes and scrambled eggs and fried eggs and bacon. But these would be nights when you guys, you the kids would just have to figure it out basically? Yeah, it was when my mom was so depressed she couldn't get out of bed and she was, she literally called them fend for yourself nights. She would just yell that from the bedroom? Yeah, yeah, you get up from school. It was like when you got up from school, she'd say it, she'd be like... It's a fend-for-yourself night. And that was about two or three nights a week. Was she um, a, a decent cook? No, she sucked. It was horrible food. It was so fend-for-yourself night honestly, was actually lucky. By the time I was about 11 years old, fend-for-yourself night meant I was going to eat better. <laughs> what was the first thing that you made that was kind of ambitious for, for a young person? I, I think the first thing was my mom's birthday. I made her a, um, a coffee cake when I was about eight years old. And I did it from scratch, and it, it came out awesome. And I remember being like, I nailed that. <laughs> I, I assume you weren't bragging to your friends about that, though, later. No, I did. I bragged all the day. I mean, I, I sucked at sports, and I, I got moved to schools all the time, so school wasn't my strong point. So, yeah, I went back, and I was like, hey, I nailed a coffee cake the other day. What'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you feel like, because I know that you're a real fan of, of sort of family-style food and of these great, wonderful meals that happen at 
Toro Bravo and your other restaurants where you just have people and it's loud and there's wine being poured from like six feet above people's heads. Is this because you're, are you into this atmosphere and this style of food because it's so different than your actual childhood? You know, when I, when, I, when I decided to become a restaurateur and I wanted to open a restaurant, I wanted to not be political, not have a statement. I wanted to throw a party. I want to be like, we want to be great chefs. We want to make the best food. But we have no agenda but to like, take you away from your life and give you a good time. Are you frustrated by the amount of your time as a restaurateur that has to be uh, dedicated to thinking about Yelp? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think as a restaurateur, so many restaurateurs I know hate Yelp. I see Yelp as one of those, like, it's my secret diner. I, like, I, I can't be at three restaurants every day, and there's truth to every criticism. There's no doubt about it. And so no one's going to get fired from a Yelp review, but when a bad Yelp review comes in, I, I want to figure out what happened, why, and how can we not have that person ever do a bad one again. When a good one comes in, we're like, hey, this is what you guys did well, and they loved it, and we, we, we evaluate it. So, but, I mean, personally, aren't there lots I think of Yelp is a great, uh, if you embrace it, it's one of the best things you have as a tool for the chef. But, I mean, it just seems like there are so many cranks out there who just get mad because, you know, the table was wobbly. Like, they go home and they cry to their cats and go on Yelp and talk about the... <laughs> I, mean, I just got some pretty mean Yelp reviews of that joke, I think. <laughs> Be hitting the internet pretty soon. You know, it's, it's tough, but like I said, there's truth to all of them, and you got to take them serious. Um, what is it about Portland, do you think? Because you moved to Portland, and you are able to open this restaurant, Toro Bravo, and then a, a few other restaurants, and they've all been wildly successful. There's something going on with Portland and food, and has been going on for a while. What gives? Well, first off, when I came to Portland, I came in 93, and Chapinese, who was shaping the food culture for a long time, was getting all of their meats from Oregon. So there was something, first off, you know, like, so, so there was ranching and farming here before there were the chefs, which is always going to bring the chefs because that means we have good food. And I think they, those guys deserve so much credit for what happened and, and now. Uh, we're talking to John Gorham. His new book is Toro Bravo, Stories, Recipes, No Bowl. It's really personal. This is the most personal cookbook I've ever <laughs> read in my life. Were, was there any part of you that felt weird sharing all that stuff with people that just maybe know you as a guy who owns these restaurants? You know, it's funny because, you know, I think if you're in my circle, I'm very open and you know who I am. And now that the book is out, I feel a little exposed and it's a little weird. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of people in the world that you didn't know that, like, you know, you, you can come from my background and you can work out of it. And I, I, I think I, that's the story I really wanted to tell was that, you, you know, you can do this if you work hard enough and you put your, your heart and follow your passion. Uh, Portland, you can't go anywhere in Portland without seeing a group of sad-eyed people milling about outside a building waiting for brunch. <laughs> are these people insane? <laughs> I mean, you, are you surprised when you got up to one of your own restaurants and there's just like no. people just like camped we're, out, like get a life, a right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have a cycling, I go cycling every weekend and I'm, part of my cycling group meets at Ristretto outside of Tasty and Sons and I'll come very stealth and never let the line know that I'm meeting other bike cyclists to go for a bike ride. And I'll go by that land and I'm like, that's crazy. I'm like, I, no way would I do that. I mean, we're like, 
<laughs> but my wife and myself, we're like sitting Half the time when we go out to eat, we're like, where can we go where there'll be no line and we can just be treated like people? That's why you guys go to Arby's a lot, right? <laughs> come on. Come on. No Arby's. What do you actually, I mean, do you have a, a, a guilty pleasure food or a thing that you eat, maybe when you're traveling, that, you know, you're in the airport or whatever, like, that people would be surprised with, with your accomplishments in the world of food? You know, it's funny. This question has come up a lot. Lately. Oh, great! I'm not an original interviewer. Thank <laughs> no, you. But, but, you know, Super I, I, I rude. Think, honest, honestly, and I think you could ask anyone around me. I really, when I fly now, I go to Whole Foods and I buy a superfood and things that are going to make me feel good through the day. I, I, I you really, mean Livewire sponsor Whole Foods Market? <laughs> <laughs> that was an accident, but yeah, that was true. But I, I, I really don't like fast food. And I think as I've grown older and the more I grow into food, I, I, I look for real food wherever I go. Um, what do you think is being overused right now as an ingredient or as a style of food? Because this is, this is an industry that is faddish in a way, right? Like something gets popular and then everybody's, everything has bacon on it and a mustache. Well, I think, I, think, I, think, I think foie gras is really overused right now. And I think... I think the protesters of foie gras have encouraged that. And I think that it's like one of those things that, that like, it, you know, fat always adds a lot of flavor to food. And it's almost like when you overuse fat, you're almost cheating because it, it, yeah, sure, it makes it taste great. That's, you know, one of those things. But I, I see it more and more getting used everywhere and, 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 you know, all the restaurants. Yeah, it's, it definitely now it seems like it's an almost, I mean, it was in a, a like an ice cream sundae I had the other day. Yeah, you was... said ice cream and with fish. You know, all these, all these applications where it was never used before. It's, it's a little, it's a little if I, I have to say, and my heart goes out to the animals that have to create foie gras. That's obviously a whole separate discussion. But if I was going to be foie gras and then I was in ice cream, I'd be <laughs> double pissed. <laughs> You're not even putting me in a real thing right now. Um, what is with the... Calling 911, you write in your book that you think Toro Bravo has to call 911 the most of any restaurant in Portland. Well, first off, we have a a, a huge wait. You know, we have a two to three hour wait. There's times where, like, our wait can be three hours at five o'clock. So if you didn't get on the line at the right time, you are going to be like three turns into where we're at. So then there's a bar upstairs, Secret Society, that's our landlord's bar. You go up there, you start drinking these, like, awesome cocktails. Then all of a sudden you come into a restaurant that's red and dark and like bustling. And I think it's like one of those like Japanese cartoons where it's just like overload and you just plop to the ground. But did, did you really have a guy whose wife was being attended to and he kept eating? Yeah, she was having a heart attack. And, and like we have a policy where we're like, whenever anyone passes out, we take them into the hallway where they can come in the back door so they don't disrupt other diners. And he would go and check on her, and he would like, be like, she's okay, and he'd have a couple bites, and he'd go back and have a couple more bites and go back. <laughs> and we also have a policy, if your lights go out, we're going to pick up the tab and like, get the AMTs to you the Don't, best we can. Do you not spread that we're around. We're going to find you if you fake it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like a, a bunch of fainting spells now yeah. at your restaurant. You, for you, obviously, food, and I, I know, and full, full disclosure, my sister works at Toro Bravo. My brother-in-law is in this new awesome cookbook for his charcuterie work. Um, I know this is like family for you, these people that you work with and the whole environment there. And then you, of course, have your own actual family, like you have a daughter. What do you cook for her? You know, for, for Ruby, I, I, you know, it's a lot of like what she likes. I think, uh, 
You know, it's a lot of mac and cheese and grilled cheese. But it's and, like the you know, best mac and cheese oh, yeah. you know, in human you know, history. She she loves Hebrew national bologna and, you know, like it's, she's a kid. And, and it's not like I'm trying to force my agenda on her because I think she'll love food at her own pace. We always introduce it. She likes sushi. She likes, uh, you know, Vietnamese food. She likes noodles and things like that. But like, you know, it's. One of those things, I think, if your agenda is to put your, your own, sh- you know, being a chef on your kids, they're going to hate you forever. And I'm like, just be a kid. It's cool. We'll make you, we'll buy the best of what you like, but we'll give you what you want. But if she doesn't bake you a beautiful coffee cake by the age of seven, Done. she's out. Done. <laughs> John Gorham's new book is Toro Bravo, Stories, Thanks. Recipes, Noble. Thanks. This is Livewire Radio. everyone. This is Glenn, our new writer. Glenn just started this morning, so let's welcome him to the Marvel Universe. Okay. So, Glenn, you're on Spider-Man. Do you have some storyline pitches? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay, lay them on us. Okay, the first one is a little different. Uh, It's that thing where a guy is just trying to go to work, right? But Spider-Man has built a web right in front of his front door. So when he comes out, it's like, what? Spider-Man! It's like in my hair. It's all in my hair. It's Spider-Man. It turns out that Spider-Man is actually on his face. What? Oh. Yeah. Is that the whole idea? Yeah, it's kind of like a horror comic. Okay, well, Spider-Man is a superhero comic. Okay, yeah, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Okay, uh, this one is probably more in that realm. Uh, Okay, so this guy's trying to take a shower, right? And he goes to turn on the water, and what? Spider-Man is in there in the shower. Oh, my God. He's right there by the drain. So this guy tries to turn the water on, and hopefully that Spider-Man will, like, ball up and go down one of the holes in the drain, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's tenacious. He survives. So the guy has to take a shower, but he can't ever turn around because he has to watch Spider-Man the whole time like a hawk, and he only gets the front of his body clean. And? And in the end, he goes to work, but he doesn't smell as good as he could have. He's just, you know, front clean. Glenn, did this storyline happen to you this morning? Why, do I smell weird? No, it's just... Glenn, are you sure you want to be on Spider-Man? It seems like you might have a fear of... Spiders? It's so funny you think that, because that is not a, a true thing that you said. All right. Do you have any other ideas to pitch? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This one is kind of sweet. It's about a kid who gets a new bicycle, and he puts it in the garage, and he doesn't ride it for a couple of days, and then he goes to the garage to get it, and Spider-Man is all over it! Oh, my God! He's Spider-Man's just crawling all over it! Ugh! And he can't get to the handlebars because of all the Spider-Mans, and they're just... Ugh! Ah! They're just... They can only be described as, like, a cluster of Spider-Men, and it's just... Ugh! Ah! Ugh! It's just like, oh, my God! Give me my bike, Spider-Man! All I want is my bike, and it's my bike, and I can't get to it, and the kid, who is definitely not me, he never rides that bike again, Okay, ever. okay, Glenn, you know what? Let's move on to Brian Michael Bendis. He's got a lot of experience, so he can show you how it's done. Brian, you have some Spider-Woman pitches? Uh, uh-huh, yes, thank you. So, okay. So you know how we all sleep with our mouths open? All right, so I read somewhere that every year up to six Spider-Women crawl in your mouth and where you're sleeping and down your esophagus, and then they just grow inside you, and there's nothing you can do about it because you're asleep. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, Meeting adjourned. Jeez. Brian, what's her problem? I love that esophagus idea. Thanks, man. Only if it works that bike story into the next Ultimate Spider-Man. 
Gross, right? That's Jen Rowe, Sean McGrath, and a heretofore unknown actor known as Brian Michael Bendis. 14 years ago, Brian Michael Bendis restarted Spider-Man's story with Ultimate Spider-Man and went on to help launch the full line of Ultimate Comics for Marvel, becoming one of the most successful writers in comics today. He's helmed the new X-Men, Fantastic Four, and all the Avenger varieties, created the Jinx line of crime comics and many of his own lines. Hollywood has even used him as a consultant on the Iron Man films, Captain America, and the Avengers. Uh, He's here to be on Livewire after making his acting debut, which I think was strong, we'll all agree. Please welcome Brian Michael Bendis to Livewire. With some acting. That was, that was good. good. You acting. sounded like a person who knows nothing about Spider-Man. Or acting. So that was good. <laughs> now, I will admit that other than reading Grew the Wanderer when I was a kid, I, my knowledge of comics is, does not go that deep. I'm curious about the process of how you actually create uh, a comic because you are the writer Somebody else does the illustrations. Yes. How does, like, you guys just get in a room together and start throwing out ideas? How does it come it together? Can, it can be that way. You can be sitting in the same room making the comics together. Uh, a lot of times, though, um, uh, the, the artist is half a world away, doesn't even speak English. So, so I, you know, I, I write for the artist. We, you know, I know who the artist is going to be, and I try to write a script that embodies their world, you know, writes to their strengths and, uh, you know, writes what they want to draw and then they go and they draw their little butts off sometimes. Someone does all the art, the pencil and the inking and the coloring. Sometimes it's, a, it's literally an assembly line. Someone pencils, another person inks it, another person colors it, another person letters it, and it all gets put together, and we pop one out every month. Are you um, just somebody who's always been into comics? Oh, you? I announced at an early age, I stood up at the Passover table, and I said... <laughs> I will be the artist of Spider-Man. And I, like, like I, if I had a thing, I'd slam it down. I, it, and, uh, and That's only, an incredible story. Only my mother really appreciates the craziness that I literally said I was going to do this, and I'm doing it. Because once you become an adult, you realize all the obstacles that were actually in my way from that moment till now, and, and still got to, it worked out. Yeah, it's crazy. How do you find out that you're getting to write the reboot of Spider-Man? Um, after, you know, I would, I, I just was making my own comics. I was making my own graphic novels for like a decade where I would just sit in my house and write and draw and do all of it myself and put them out. And they were, they were always doing well enough to make another one. You know, I wasn't costing anybody any money. Uh, but it's a lot like the indie film world where if you make $5, they'll make, let you make another one. So I, I, I kept going, and I was getting, like, nice write-ups, but it was never helping sales or anything. Like, Spin Magazine did something on me and a couple other things like that. And I just kept going and going. And then one day, uh, a good friend of mine, David Mack, he got a job at Marvel that was really cool. And it wasn't just a job, but a cool job at Marvel. And um, I kept going, show him my stuff. Show him my stuff. Because I just, like, would like to make a living making comics, but the whole time I was making comics for myself in the 90s, I was also drawing caricatures to pay the bills. Like and, at the mall? Uh, like at bar mitzvahs, like at weddings, and that is the lowest form of art on the planet Earth. 
It is literally, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving it all I got, but, you know, people are drunk. They go, you know, a couple sits down. Some guy goes, don't forget to draw our mustache. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> My daughter this. and I were in Reno for a volleyball tournament of hers, and we got one of those drawn. And the people that went before were this other girl from her team. And the guy does this whole drawing. And, of course, the whole skill with caricatures, you make the people look more attractive yes. than they really are. No one complains about that, right? My daughter and I sit for our drawing a half hour later. We were the homeliest caricatures. I, I had a gut hanging out. She had sad eyes. It was the most depressing caricature. I we actually, have it at home because it's awesome. But <laughs> I actually learned that lesson early on. I, I got a job at a bat mitzvah. I'm Jewish, and I was at a bat mitzvah. And can you imagine anything more horrible than making fun of the looks of a group of 12-year-old Jewish girls? They were, like, they, I mean, they hated me. Like, there's nothing I could do. So I, I, I learned... Lighten it up, you know. Not, not everything has to be Hirschfeld, you know. Right. Take it, take it, you know. So I, I did learn that lesson. But yeah. So anyway, so I, I would rather write for Marvel than than do these characters. And 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 uh, uh, and one lo and behold, one day Joe Quesada, who was uh, just started as editor in chief, he called me up and uh, offered me. He'd read some of my books that I was writing and drawing, and he and he asked me. Uh, what I wanted to do if I came to Marvel. And I said, what do you need an artist for? And he was like a, there was like a dead pause. And he goes, artwork? Your artwork's horrible. <laughs> he goes, you know you're a writer, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> got to be mixed feelings for you. No, I got to tell you, it made me feel great because I go, well, if, if this works out with this guy, this is a guy you can trust. This is a guy who's going to tell, I don't need, I have a mom who tells me how awesome I am. I don't need, I need a guy, I need someone who's going to tell me if I'm screwing up so when my work gets on a national or international stage, I've, I'm not going to embarrass myself. So, but it worked out really well and, and uh, I ended up working on Daredevil for a couple issues and then I literally got a call and said, listen, if we start Spider-Man over from scratch, is that like something you'd want to do? And I'm like... And like seven-year-old Brian Michael Bendis just like jumped out yeah, of like, like a ghost and said, yeah! Yeah, and, uh, and, and the gig worked out. It, it really worked out well. So uh, we are still doing it, yeah. We're talking to Brian Michael Bendis. This is Livewire Radio. How do you approach the reboot of something like Spider-Man? Like, are there things that have to stay in? Like, he has to get bit by a radioactive spider. Like, there are the basics of the story, but then you get to kind of just come up with your own other thing? Well, I think people can see even from the way the, the, the superhero movies have come about that the ones that realize that these things aren't broken, that you don't have to fix them, uh, you know, always the movies that try to fix it, they blow it. They, 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 try, they try to be too smart or, or, you know, or they're embarrassed by it by some way. But it's not, it's not broken. I just took it and, and adapted it. Honestly, I said much like you would ad, adapt Shakespeare. Shakespeare's not broken. You're just altering it to fit whatever new setting that you're putting it in. And, uh, and, that, and that's what we did. And, and there's changes to the way we read comics now and the language of comics and, and things. And, even, and I, I got to talk to Stan Lee uh, years afterwards, and he said, yeah, the reason the first appearance of Spider-Man is only 11 pages is because that's all the pages that I had. I was given, an, you know, I can have as many pages as I want. It was, I, I would have gone on and on and on if I was allowed to. So I, it was just I had more of an opportunity than he had when he first created it. I saw an interaction you had online where somebody was kind of calling uh -oh. you out, saying that, you know, you were <laughs> trying to appeal to women and that it wasn't interesting to him. And you were not having that. Uh, like, I, you I, were, like, really angry in your response. No, I wasn't. I was, it was just, it was just, there is this um, weird thing. It seems to be only online. It doesn't seem to happen in real life where, uh, like, 
and I, as the writer of X-Men, which is all about tolerance and accepting people's differences, when someone says they're a fan of the X-Men, except I hate this, I go, no, you're completely missing the point of the X-Men. Please stop reading them. Like, you're like, it's the, it's the simplest moral in the history of the world, and you've completely missed it. But yeah, I, I listen, I have, I, have, I have three daughters and a wife and many friends, and I'm not going to have a world where someone is going to yell at me because... I'm like the, the idea was that I was uh, somehow kowtowing to the female readership and spending too much time on Kitty Pride when really all people want to read about is Scott Summers. So stop writing about the women. No one cares about them. And I was like, okay, listen, you listen, buddy. <laughs> and I just assumed somewhere along the line he didn't learn a lesson, or he's a younger person. And I'm going to give time time for some tough love. And I and I and I and I did express myself very frankly, which is, um, you know, you know. Women are people too, and you're going to. Did you hear back from this guy? Uh, No, it was. uh, I I, what I did is I heard back from a a flurry of people who were thrilled that I had gone on that controversial pro women stance. You know, like my friend, uh, my friend Matt Fraction said, uh, "I can't wait for you to come out against cancer." Big, big, big. uh, So, so, but yeah, listen. But the great thing about. Uh, our generation of, of authors of any sort is that you have amazing interaction that you know the comic creators of the generation just before me didn't get. They they would make their comics and maybe they get a letter or two, but we get like instantaneous feedback. Our books come out like every Wednesday, and every Wednesday we hear we hear immediately what they thought of it. It's the best feeling in the world. I mean, it keeps you honest. Is comic book guy from The Simpsons a hurtful stereotype? Uh, yes, but, um, but a true one. So that's why it comes here. <laughs> no, listen, you know, I, I think uh, people were here at the Rose City Comic Con or any of the, and people, people are up at the, the Geek Girl Con up in Seattle this weekend. The, the, the walls have come down. The people just want good stories and characters they believe in and culture that they like and s- smart writing and good art. And, that's, and they don't care where it's coming from, how it's coming from. And, so, and, and there's a lot of stories being told. For literally any, anything you like, I can point a comic book out to you that you will love. Um, well, this is very exciting for us uh, to have you here because we don't usually get to have a comic legend like yourself on the show. And so... Because Portland is such a big comic book town, as you're mentioning, we thought yes. it would be fun to bring up the person who we think might be Portland's biggest Brian Michael Bendis fan oh boy. and have a Brian Michael Bendis trivia off between you and this guy. <laughs> your competitor in trivia about your own life and career, Brian oh Michael God. Bendis, will be Mikey Nielsen, the host of the podcast Chronicles of the Nerds. Mikey, come on down. You guys think this is funny, but no matter what happens now, this is going to haunt me for years online. <laughs> okay, this is uh, how this is going to work. So I'm going to ask the question, and then you've got to raise your hand if you know. Whoever raises their hand first, they get to, uh, they get to give the first answer. And then if they miss it, the other person could get a steal, okay? You guys ready? Okay, question number one. Brian Michael Bendis and artist Mark Bagley are the longest-running team to work on one, uh, one book with... With 110 issues, I kind of got to give it to Mikey because he put his hand up before I finished the question. Uh, one book with 110 consecutive issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. Which writer-artist team record did they break, Mikey? Uh, that would be Stanley and Jack Kirby on Fantastic Four. That was absolutely right. But I, I hate to interrupt you. We did 111 and a half issues. And, uh, but, and, and the longest running ever is uh, the guys who did Grew the Wanderer. Thank you. 
Oh. And, and I'm sorry, I thought you were just going to ask me the ultimate Spider-Man question, and so I didn't even really raise my hand <laughs> actually knowing the answer yet for that. So. All right, here we go. <laughs> question number two. Uh, right now, it's Mikey 1, Brian Michael Bendis 0, although you did get some I think sympathy I should get points. A half. I think I should get All half. right, the <laughs> ultimate Marvel team-up, issues four through five, who are the villains fighting against Spider-Man and Iron Man? Michael. It's oh no, I'm sorry. It, it, it's Latveria. It's but it's the Latverians. It's the, it's the Mandroids. It it's the Latverian mercenaries. You're mercenaries. absolutely right. <laughs> first first appearance of Ultimate Nick Fury, which is the African American Nick Fury that turned into Sam Jackson. Thank you. Now is that is that story technically in continuity? In though? continuity. Okay. Are you gonna do this the whole time? <laughs> what? <Are> you... <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> Question number three. When, when Brian Michael Bendis was still in high school, he got oh, an A plus in creative writing for adapting what writer's story into a novel? Mikey. Uh, that would be Chris Claremont. That's exactly right. It's Chris Claremont. I, I adapted an X Men story that, that was star, the Star Jammers, fully thinking that everyone knows who these characters are and that my teacher would know that I was adapting the story. And then I got the best grade I've ever gotten in my life with this is the most, oh, like, well, like a notes from her. How, and it was such a, I just, I'm like, okay. Uh, Brian, and you're and not I, getting the points for this. Today. Okay. I turned in, these are my points. Sorry. You're I not turned in a. <laughs> I turned in a Dave Barry column once for an assignment. And could you believe that my 40-year-old white teacher had read Dave Barry and totally busted me? All right, here we go. Uh, question number... Are we on four now? Well, I'm just going to raise my hand now because he just okay. jumps on him. Right now it's Mikey three, Brian half a point. Okay. That's a pity point. A pity point. Brian okay, Michael Bendis' first book was about a boy who could read women's minds. That book was called... BMB. I was. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, you had your hand up. Yeah, sure. BMB. You can. That Peter. is Spunky Todd, the that psychic right. boy, and I to this day still think it has Simpsons quality potential. Nobody bought this book. Like four people bought this book. Thank well, you. you are right. It is Spunky Todd. Thank you did you. get a point. We're Thank very you. proud of you. All right. Uh, Fifteen years ago, Brian Michael Bendis was shooting a Jinx reference photo with machetes <laughs> in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh. No, no. And what almost happened, Mikey? Okay, uh, all right, so the, um, this is when the police showed up, surrounded you, and almost shot you, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, on, on, on the major bridge. Like, imagine this happening on the Hawthorne Bridge in Portland. We, me and my friends were doing a photo shoot. My friend took out uh, what he thought I would need to, for, uh, like, props. And one was a bloody machete and other things. It was for a crime comic. And we turned around and the bridge had been shut down and cops had surrounded us. And I had uh, literally gun to my bald head. Yeah, I mean, put, put, in, the, put in the handcuffs, thrown in the Terrifying. Yeah, Not big. as terrifying yeah. as the fact that you're losing this quiz right now. <laughs> Four to 1.5. All right, here I'm we go. To Next question. I'm trying to cover up with interesting stories. Next Sorry. question. While he sleeps, Brian Michael Bendis likes to have this personal care item within arm's reach. Mikey. Well, he, he's just like me. It's a back scratcher. Yeah. Is that, that, is, that is right? Yeah, that is right. And who, who gave you that one? That was given to you. It turns out Mikey has been living in the bushes outside of your bedroom. 
I'm for the last four that, years. That uh, author Chelsea Kane gave that to you behind the scenes. That's what uh, well, here that's we'll just, slanderous, sir. It's we're going to get into the last question here. Brian Michael Bendis stores his T-shirts in six labeled yeah, drawers. List two of the six labels. Oh, oh okay. First Nail off, it. they're not drawers. They're cubbies. All right. Okay. And I can name three. There's going to be uh, one for comics, one for logos, and one for Artie. Are those really labels on your cubbies? No. This is uh, a... Oh, yeah, there are. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. All right. Again, I believe believe you have an insider man. This is deep, deep cover stuff. We we actually did. Mikey is a super fan, but we we made contact with your lovely wife who gave us some of the inside dirt. Listen, Brian Michael Bendis, thank you so much for doing this. And also, Mikey Nielsen, that was awesome. The Livewire podcast is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Market. Home-cooked meals are important, you guys, which is why Whole Foods stocks a whole range of organic and fair trade ingredients for you to cook that big family dinner with. But there's also no reason why you can't cheat a little bit, which is why Whole Foods has a whole bunch of hot prepared sides at their stores. They're just as organic, and they're made from scratch as well. So you can slip them in there, Mrs. Doubtfire style. Nobody's going to notice. For more information, check out eataspromised.com. Welcome back. Here with his thoughts on comic book superheroes, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesman and the Sliding Glass Door, Scott Poole, with Reflections from the Pool. Now is the summer of our discontent. Discontent barbecues dot the land in bad-tasting pie-eating contests, and discontent frisbees fly through the air, smacking the discontented depressed in the head. Such discontent makes a man want to become a superhero, to fly above all of it. It might drive a man to decide to become a human pigeon, perhaps. Such a man might like the way pigeons eat constantly but can still fly despite their huge pot bellies that look like gravy boats. <laughs> Better yet, this theoretical man could become a superhero pigeon gravy boat. <laughs> Why not become a gravy boat, sterling silver, a prized heirloom filled to the brim with steaming delicious gravy, starring at the very center of the Thanksgiving feast, yet at the same time still have wings and fly carefree across the land over the Wendy's and the McDonald's and the Arby's so fair. Oh, to fly about town delivering gravy carefully to your friends on their mashed potato plates held high to the sky when they hear your sonic boom, coo, rock across the city. Or alternatively, scald unawares your enemies with a flood of gravy, causing them to crash their bicycles or unicycles or tricycles or penny farthings or razor scooters or prized miniature horses or homemade wooden conveyances into telephone poles and die. (laughs) What freedom, what power. Such a man might be driven to coin a phrase, hoping it would catch on in certain regions. 
Don't mess with Pigeon Man unless you want to be sent to an early gravy. <laughs> Such is the sad delusion of this summer of discontent. People would try to stop him, but he'd always be upstairs filling his bathtub with Noor packets and boiling hot water and turkey trimmings while he tries to buy a jet engine and wings on the internet to strap to the claw foot. And when such a man would be out buying duct tape and feathers and wondering why they're not in the same department, neighborhood kids would sneak into his house and steal five-gallon buckets of gravy to bring back to their families where they would be welcomed with open arms as the sunset resembles a rainbow on a slice of roast beef. Thus, the pigeon gravy boat man's work is never done. So when you hear somebody say, the rest is gravy, you know they're lying. Good gravy is harder than growing wings. Thank you. Scott Poole, Reflections by the Pool. Livewire is brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, committed to supporting farmers and serving fresh local food in easy-to-carry burrito form. So good, so close. More information at laughingplanetcafe.com. Well, Dan, there's a flag on the field. Let's see what the referee has to say. After reviewing the play, there are multiple penalties on the field. Holding, offense number 74, 10-yard penalty. Pass interference, defense number 21. Spelling error on those fans with the chest paint. Half the distance to the goal. Chazbot, untucked jersey, number 60. Tuck it in, Mr. Man. Illegal, cushion for the pushing, number 81. Prior to the snap, six yards, three meters, spicy mustard. Offsides, football. Number 55, horse collar, running with the ball, declined. Lorraine Newman, encroachment, on the dream team, nine-yard penalty. Neutral zone infraction, double defense, triple offense, sprinkles, too many men on the field, not enough good men in my life, those penalties offset, unnecessary roughness number 17, necessary roughness number 91, zoom a zoom a zoom in the boom boom, six men in the huddle, three coins in a fountain, on the kicking team, whiskey d that ball is tipped, smoking in the boys room, number 82, face mask, out of bounds, personal foul, Batman, nine yards. Home run, making fun of the kicker. That's an automatic first down. Tampa Bay will be charged a timeout. That was Sean McGrath with what I will just say as a football fan has got to be one of the most genius sketches that we've had on this show in a long time. This show, by the way, which is Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Okay, we're in the home stretch, but before we go, we're going to hear another song from 1939 Ensemble. They're the percussion-based kind of avant-garde band from Portland. But we're not just going to hear the music. Um, I was actually so taken with their sound when they played for us live on stage at the Alberta Rose. And also so fascinated kind of with the story behind the sort of music they're making that I decided I wanted to ask Jose Medellis, he's one half of the band, how exactly they got here. <laughs> um, your new album is uh, called Howl and Bite. What sort of reaction are you hoping to elicit from the audience when they hear this kind of music you guys are making? Um, the reaction is, I think, just... Um you know, hopefully excitement and maybe a head tilt going, wow, that, oh, that sounds weird, but okay, I get it. All right, I see what these guys are trying to do. Um, and just to try to introduce new sounds to people 
and new voicing um, and make music exciting and just make people think sometimes. That's all. Now, is this for you a reaction to having played in so many bands? You have your own drum shop. You've just been listening to music your entire life. And is it like regular, quote unquote, regular music, if there is such a thing? It started to just sound the same to you, and so you're naturally trying to kind of go out into some new frontier. I mean, is that a result of, of having just listened to, like, so much music in your life that you want to hear something different? I think so. I think that's a fair, you know, assessment, you know, of it. And I've always been excited for different types of music. Uh, you know, I put out a couple solo drum records. I've always been a fan of free jazz and experimental music. So, yeah, I think... Um, keep things really interesting and fun and pushing the gamut on my end i think this is a direct result of that sure is it kind of um a weird feeling going into a project knowing that it's really not going to be for everybody um i love that i really do um because i've had that i've had those really wonderful moments of you know playing music that people are going to love and dig and that my mom's going to love I've been there. So it is really, um, it's great to get into something where I know this is not for everyone. But let me tell you, the cats that dig it, I mean, it's awesome because they really get it, which is, I, I love. What would your sales pitch be to folks who have <laughs> just listened to, you know, more traditional stuff and maybe they hear something like 1939 Ensemble and they go, I don't get it. How do you, I mean, what's your elevator pitch for people to, to, to get them to at least turn their ear towards something like this and, and try to give it a shot? I say first buy a record. Very important. Buy a record. That's yes. the first point. And then uh, go home and put, on a, put it on your turntable or download or whatever you do and put on a uh, pair of headphones and just relax and just have no expectations and just sit there and really listen to what's going on. Listen to the brutality listen to how pretty the melodies are we we uh we really draw a map for the listeners it's interesting because what you're describing is something a way of listening to music that's almost the opposite of the way that we now currently live our lives we don't take enough time with anything anymore we're like we're totally distracted and if something i mean for a lot of us maybe maybe not for, for you but for a lot of us if something isn't immediately gratifying or if it isn't neatly packaged, or if it, you know what I mean? It's yeah. to sit down and to sort of be still and to just like, con just to listen to something and have that be your total focus and not have your phone out or whatever. I mean, that's a thing that's really hard for people to do in this day and age. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I know that I had to do that with Black Flag, Tom Waits, John Zorn. I had to do it with all of them. Because if I went on my first impression, I don't know if I would like any of those artists. Well, um, Jose, this has been really interesting, and I, I'm going to go uh, later today, and I'm going to sit down with this record with <laughs> Howl and Bite, and I'm going to put on the headphones, and I'm going to put the telephone away, and I'm just going to take a listen. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that.
That's 1939 Ensemble, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater. You've been listening to Livewire Radio. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. That's our show for the week. Thank you so much. Our thanks to our guests, John Gorham, Brian Michael Bendis, Mikey Nielsen, and 1939 Ensemble. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission, and National Endowment for the Arts. Plus, listeners like you find beautiful people. Speaking of things that are fine and beautiful, hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe, the best hotel in the world, if you ask me. Our media partners are KUOW 94.9 FM in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and kink.fm. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy group is Sean McGrath, Jennifer Rowe, and Andrew Harris. Our head writer is Courtney Hameister with show writers Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and me. Guest writers this show are Alex Falcone and Paul Glazier. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our engineer is Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Will Fernandez. Big special thanks also to Revival Drum Shop. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.